The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is again about the wonderful speakers that are going to be at Contact in the Desert this coming weekend. We're so excited. So the Contact in the Desert is the world's largest UFO conference, um, which will be held for its seventh year from May 31st to June 3rd in Indian Wells at the Renaissance Indian Wells and Spa. And my very favorite guest to be interviewed is today because we are going to be interviewing a professor from right here at the University of California, Irvine. I have seen him so many times on television on Ancient Aliens, which is my favorite show to watch on Friday nights. And I'm just thrilled that we are going to be talking with Michael Dunnett. Now, he has a really long bio, but I'm going to just tell you a little bit about him and the rest you can find at privacypiracy.org. Professor Michael Dunnan has been a professor of physics and astronomy at UCI since 1997. He is also now the vice provost for teaching and learning and dean for the Division of Undergraduate Education. His research focuses on the dynamics of foams and modeling of ice melange in Fjord, so he's going to have to tell us a little bit about that. He's passionate about public outreach in the area of science, appearing on numerous television programs. And by the way, he, he as an undergrad, he was at Princeton, and then he got his master's and his a PhD at University of California in beautiful Santa Barbara, beautiful place to go. Anyway, you can find Professor Dunnan in the YouTube series, Fascinating Flights, and he is debating the outcome of battles between pop icons. In addition, Michael serves as an expert on the podcast Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies, where he explains how to make fictional technology a reality. Recently, he published a science outreach book on the intersection between science and faith, and the name of that book is Divine Science, Finding Reason at the Heart of Faith from Franciscan Media. And he's going to be speaking on Sunday at Contact in the Desert. So we're going to find out what he's going to be speaking about. And we're just so thrilled to have you join us, Michael, especially since you're on the other side of the country right now. That was so sweet of you to talk to us. Oh, it's exciting to be here. I I love talking to anything, to people and anyone connected to UCI. So that's awesome. Okay, wonderful. Okay, so first of all, I think it's exciting since I love ancient aliens. How How did you get involved with ancient aliens? 
Yeah, it was it was actually an interesting connection because I first got to do a whole bunch of TV specials with Prometheus, the production company that does Ancient Aliens, right. that were around superheroes, so Spider-Man, uh, Spider-Man tech, Batman tech, Star Wars tech, and, and the science of Superman. So they knew about my work in public outreach, and so when they first conceived of the two-hour pilot initial show for Ancient Aliens, they reached out to me, and I thought it would be really interesting to to look at particularly a lot of the ancient uh, technologies and things that had happened and ask the question, what would it be like if people had had to make these or how might people have done it with a very different set of technology than we have now? So they brought me on the show for that perspective. Uh, and it just it, it worked out really well. I enjoy working with the production company, and there's always great science questions that they bring up, and so just stuck with it. I've actually been in every season. Not every episode, but I have been in every season, and we just recently filmed again for the next season. So it's, it's been a really fun show to be involved with. I know. So some of my friends, when I tell them I watch Ancient Aliens, they look at me like I'm nuts. But then it's really a well-done show. It's like a documentary of all the things that we don't understand from, you know, from the ancient pyramids to those under, underground uh, Turkish uh, cities. Uh, you know, it's just fascinating stuff. I mean, how do we understand all this? It's crazy, right? Well, yeah, and I think a lot of what makes it fun is it's an exciting, the equivalent of an exciting detective story. We have a certain amount of clues. They're very, very old clues. So we don't have, and a lot of it comes from time in human history where we didn't have written records yet, um, or if we did, there's very little left. And so it's an interesting time period to speculate about. And, you know, though obviously the focus of the show and a lot of the people on it are speculating on how... Um, alien visitations in the past might explain this. I get the fun role of explaining how, you know, our understanding of what humans are capable of might explain how those things were done and then how we lost that technology or what happened to it um, throughout human history. So it's nice. They they joke and call me their last remaining friendly skeptic. (laughs) But it's a fun role to play in the show. It is. It's great. So what are you going to be speaking at at this conference, the Contact in the Desert? So Contact in the Desert is exciting. It's my second time to get to speak at it. Um, the first time I, I actually was just speaking uh, about physics related to special and general relativity and how that might impact space travel. This time we're actually I'm putting together, we're, we've put together a panel um, based off of the fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technology podcast I'm on. There's three of us in that podcast. Um, Dan Glenn hosts it to the most, uh, is basically the host, for lack of a better word. We like to call him the analytical mastermind behind it. I do all the <laughs> physics, and then Ben Siepser is on it, and he's an engineer. And we take technology that doesn't look like it's possible to do from popular media and discuss how you might make it, for Contact in the Desert, we're going to focus all exclusively on alien technologies. Mm. And what I like, the nice twist on it is there's a lot we know in science fiction that we eventually as humans have actually made and done. So, you know, from the first science fiction stories about going to the moon when no one thought we could, as humans we eventually made it to the moon, to Dick Tracy's communicator, risk communicators, and now everybody's running around with their Apple Watch or other, you know, smartphone watches. Yeah, yeah. So we know science fiction is often a good predictor of technology. 
so, and recently with things like the Marvel Universe and other movies, there's been a ton, a resurgence of alien technology in the movies. And so we get to have a fun two-part panel. The first part will look at the alien technology from the movies that we think we can reproduce and we can speculate how and connect it to examples of what people think um, might be examples of alien technology, either that have been found or speculated about to enable aliens to travel. And so we're going to kind of cross both sides of that bridge. The, the alien technology in the movies, which is sort of one of my bread and butters, is popular culture and science. But then, you know, the speculated alien technology, whether it's from ancient aliens or current, um, you know, current views of alien technology. So it's going to be, I think, a really fun two hours with a slightly different perspective than some of the standard toxic contact in the desert. So I think that unique view will hopefully excite people and draw them to our panel. Oh, well, I'm going to come. <laughs> I'm not going to oh, miss good, that exciting. one. Yeah. Well, you know, I think like all these things that we saw on Star Trek and Star Wars, you know, from yeah. way back in the 70s, you know, so many of those things have come to be, right? So. Oh, and- it's Definitely. A, I mean, I love the, 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 the Star Trek communicator, right. right, is basically our cell phones. Right. Um, and even the little machine that they would use to make food. Yes. Um, we have 3D printers now, and, and we're actually starting to 3D print, you know, organic materials and possibly even food. And yeah. so we're not that far from, you're right, a lot of these technologies. And I remember somebody said, you know, anything man can think of or woman, uh, they can do. You know? you know, I've often wondered that, and I do think that's, I, I think that's, there's a, a deep truth there that we often overlook, because um, it may not happen exactly the way we creatively imagine it, mm-hmm. but there's got, you know, how can you imagine something so far from reality that you can't make a reality? That would right. be weird, I think. Right. So yeah. time travel is another one that I always think about, you know, like, okay, could I go back and see what, what really happened when I go to Chichen Itza? Or right. <laughs> wouldn't that be fun to go and actually see what happened there? Or, oh, yeah. you know, what, what was going on with the Mayans? I mean, it's just, it, just, you know, that kind of stuff just fascinates me. So yeah. What, go go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, it's so funny when you think, so time travel, I think, is a great example of, um, you know, Whenever you see movies about it, there's something always weird that doesn't quite work out, and you get confused about how the whole, well, I went in the past and I changed something, what's the future? Right, so, right. But, but I do think one thing I've seen in a lot of science fiction stories is viewing the past without traveling there. And when you think about the behavior of perhaps certain exotic particles in particle physics that we've speculated might exist but haven't discovered yet, you actually realize that there um, could be very real ways of looking back in time um, that, in a sense, that's much easier and less paradox-prone than traveling back in time. And that, for most of what we want to do, which is just learn about the past, looking back is, you know, for all intents and purposes, the same as traveling back. Mm-hmm. And there's that whole thing about time. Is is everything happening simultaneously? You know, that thing just kind right. of blows my mind when I think about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, but it, it's, it's so fascinating. I think... Um, so how did you get into physics? I mean, what was this? As a little boy, were you all interested? What, what you know, this? I was always interested in science. Um, you know, probably if I was honest, when I was young enough, before I knew what science really was, I was more interested in science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved reading science fiction from as soon as I can remember. Right. But 
you know, and then when I got into college, honestly, I was interested in either majoring in physics, uh, in physics, history or physics. I just combined them into one word. <laughs> well, that's a new word that you uh, coined. <laughs> I know. Um, I was interested in history, math, and physics, and mm-hmm. it was just because now that I advise students so much, I point out to them some of life is just interesting choices. I, I knew physics was very sequenced. Um, history I could take a lot of if I didn't major in it. And history you had to write more, and I didn't like writing back then. Um, and I didn't know how much I'd have to write as a physicist. That was kind of naive of me. Um, and, and, and that kind of put especially me into being, physics. Especially being a yeah. professor, you have to write, exactly. right? Exactly. <laughs> I have to write grants and proposals and papers. But, sure. Um, but I really, I enjoyed the problem-solving aspect of it. Mm. Um, and I really, I thought I was going to do what we call theoretical physics, where I just do math. And then in, in graduate school, I discovered how fun it is to build actual physical pieces of equipment and, and do real experiments. So that's how I ended up doing experiments. Mm. Uh, and it really, I think it's really the puzzle solving and the fact that physics is nice of many of the sciences because I heard someone say this once, and it's very true. In physics, we ask the problems that are just hard enough to be interesting but easy enough to be solved. People like to think about and say physics is really hard, and I understand that because as a class back in high school, it was probably the one of the harder ones yeah. because of the way it combined math and other stuff. Right. But as a science discipline, it's one of the easiest because, look, I study bubbles and ice chunks and things that um, I don't have to make sure they stay alive. I don't need special uh, medical approval to study them. <laughs> they don't suddenly die on me. Right. It's, and, and they're not behaving in weird, complicated ways. It's things you can study cleanly. So it's a nice science because you actually get these pretty clear, straightforward answers. Um, you know, right now, I would, I would love to be involved, say, in brain science or something like that. Mm. But I look at what my colleagues do, and, and to just do a, a simple experiment is so hard. So I, I have great respect for what people do in the fields of biology and chemistry and how they study things there. But um, I, I really think it's the puzzle solving and the unknown and getting to ask questions that really drew, it to me, drew me to science. So you have to tell me about this dynamics of foam and modeling of ice melange and fjords. So what are you trying to what are you trying to figure out by doing that? <laughs> well, the, it's interesting. The basic question is pretty easy to explain, shockingly. And and foams are the the good place to start. You know, shaving cream or any sort of foam that's uh, what we call an aqueous foam. It's gas bubbles with a liquid wall. Mm-hmm. Every molecule in there is in a fluid state and is free to flow. The liquid in the walls, the gas in the bubbles. And a lot of science traditionally has been done where you claim if I look at the smallest part and understand how it behaves, I can understand everything. Well, in the case of foam, the smallest pieces are all, like I said, fluids. And yet the foam can hold its shape and act like a solid. Hmm. I mean, if you spray shaving cream out of the bottle, it holds its shape, it vibrates like a solid. Right. You can actually still make it flow. You can spread it on your face. Right. Uh, but it flows for a different reason than the molecules. So all the properties of foam actually depend on the structure of the bubbles, not the molecules. Hmm. So, and so you hmm. have a situation, what we call emergent behavior, where the behavior emerges at a different length scale or a different point in the system than the smallest point. And that's a general property of many systems, and bubbles just happen to be a really simple one to study it in. And then ice melange, which is just big chunks of ice in fjords being pushed by glaciers, just happens to be a really, really another cool example 
of this type of thing because now you have big chunks of solid ice that can actually flow like a fluid. It's sort of the reverse of it. And sometimes they get stuck and they jam and they don't flow anymore. And the question with the ice chunks that we're asking is, it's kind of dangerous to go stand in a fjord and if you put scientific instruments there, they tend to break because the ice is crushing them. So we're asking the question with sort of millimeter and centimeter sized particles of plastic that float and have the same density as ice. Can I study the same physics in my lab that you would study of things that are meters or kilometers big out in a fjord? Um, and so it's, it's asking, in this case, the question of, can we basically make a model of the fjord? Mm. So my very fundamental question is, you know, why do things that are made up of fluids or solids at the particle, you know, at the microscopic level, behave differently at the large-scale macroscopic level? And then sometimes, like with the ice fjords, we're just asking practical questions of, can I make something in my lab that will model a real behavior out in the world? And so how does that relate to, like, climate change? I mean, practically, how do we use that in the real world? Yeah, so for the fjord stuff, you know, one of the real questions is how fast are the glaciers? We're particularly looking at ones in Greenland. How fast are they moving and sliding into the ocean? And whether or not the ice chunks in front of them can stop them from moving if they get stuck enough. Huh, yeah. So that would be something that man might want to do to... retain that right right and to help keep things there and then in the foams and other stuff almost all the technical applications have to do with things like um, almost any think of almost any food or beauty or health product it's often a foam or granular or powder base right right Um, and the industrial processing of these really relies on understanding how to flow them through pipes and tubes and deliver them to different places um, and, and so that, that's that's kind of the practical application of, of the, those systems. Yeah, when I think about all the foams, I have foam for my hair. And yep. I'm thinking, you know, that's, that is kind of neat how they make that do that. But, you know, you wonder what it does to the environment and all that stuff. You exactly. Know? So can you get – so most of what engineering of foams does now is based just on trial and error. So if you understood it from a more fundamental physics point of view – you could then answer questions like, well, let's suppose we wanted to use a completely different set of chemicals that we knew were more environmentally, you know, nice. Right. Could you do that, and how would you design that foam? And those are the sort of practical applications. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So I have a question about your book. Um, Sure. So, you know, about your new book. So what is the premise of your new book, that that, um, physics and science does not discount... uh, a, a spiritual being out there, uh, the source of everything, a, a, uh, <laughs> whatever yeah. it is. I mean, exactly. tell me. <laughs> so I, I would, I would say it slightly differently, but basically, yes. So, um, for full disclosure, I'm, I'm a practicing Catholic. I joke, I'm a practicing Catholic and a practicing physicist and someday I'll get good at both of those. <laughs> uh, and, but the, the basic premise of the book is a recognition that you really, in a sense, there's two possible assumptions you can start with. One is that physical reality is all that there is, and that's what science studies, or that there is more than just physical reality. There's this fullness of reality, and by definition, you could call that God. That's what makes sense, and then ask questions. Well, what properties? What do we know about what's the nature of this fullness of reality? 
and how is that consistent with what we understand about physical reality, which by definition is part of whatever the fullness of reality is. And it's a slightly different starting point. Most people I find in this space who work publicly are either trying to prove God exists or God does not exist. I, you know, from my own personal journey, point out that really that's not a useful debate from one perspective is because until you actually define what you mean by God, right. there's, it's, you know, there's lots of people who believe in a God that I don't quite think their view of God is right. So from that perspective, they might call me an atheist because I don't believe in their God. Right. Um, but I think there's, and there's a lot of people who don't, I think, fully understand um, science and physics well enough that they don't realize it's not in contradiction with their view of God. So right. the book tries to take people through a particular journey that I went on um, and that I'm still going on as I try and understand more and just pose questions and give, you know, temporary or, or tentative solutions or answers to them that I think point to then more interesting questions. Uh, and in the process show how really our experiences around faith and our experiences around science should support and help each other and, and provide a back and forth that's po- positive and productive and doesn't need to be in conflict. Right. And I remember seeing on Ancient Aliens one night, they were, they were talking about the, that they discovered the God particle. Yeah, so that's kind of the funny thing that happens, right? <laughs> scientists use weird names for things. I, I, and I don't know why scientists ever called it the God particle, but it, the Higgs boson is a particle we discovered that happens to be the particle that, if we're right, explains the masses of the other particles. In physics, there, there's no real reason that particles should have mass, and they certainly shouldn't have different masses. So we've been trying to figure that piece out, and the Higgs particle does that, and, and someone either part in jest or part seriousness, decide to call that the God particle, which I always found funny, a a funny name. (laughs) Well, you know, uh, how I see it is, you know, they obviously don't contradict each other, that there's that divine mind, you know. It's just like, what is it that creates everything, you know? It's the creator of everything, whatever that is, which, you know, maybe your profession will will find it, but um, it's fascinating to me. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, what do you think? How close to interstellar travel do you feel that we really are? Well, personally, I'm hopeful that either medicine will get really, really good and I'll live a long time, um, <laughs> or, or we'll be pretty fast. I think we're actually shockingly close. Um, I think the key element, and this goes back to my statement that I almost did history you know, instead of physics, you know, when I look at the Western Europe's exploration um, of the world, you realize um, we, it was kind of scary, the type of ships and what people did to go around at that point. And then the more we learn about, you know, what, what humans were able to do in the South Pacific um, and travel these great distances um, with what we would call primitive technology but was rather sophisticated at what it did, um, a lot of human exploration was always driven often by underlying sort of economic reasons and, and reasons of expansion. And I really do feel we're, we're reaching that tipping point where the motivation to go out and fill space and, 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 and get to other planets, particularly now that we couple it with the fact that we have a good understanding that there really, really are exoplanets out there, and many of them are in what we call the habitable zone, 
I think that economic drive will help accelerate the process. I mean, we've already been able to make it to the moon, and that was really, I think, perhaps the most challenging first step. And we did that with computers and technology that, by today's standards, are incredibly primitive. Right. Um, and technology is expanding at an exponential rate, which is actually correct. Many people use the word exponential mathematically incorrectly, but <laughs> we, we actually are doing that. And so I, I would not be surprised, um, you know, if in the next certainly 50 years we have launched some major um, attempt at interstellar travel. Now, our first attempt might be purely some sort of robotic or, you know, non, non-living attempt. Um, but I, 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 think, I think we're getting really close. You know, we, we have a much better, we've had enough presence in space to really understand some of the biological risks and challenges and what we need to do right. um, in zero gravity. Uh, we're, we're getting a better understanding of perhaps um, the biochemistry and maybe, you know, the classic way is to get ships up to near light speed or perhaps use um, hibernation so that, you know, we, we can sleep through most of the trip. Like I said, computers and onboard technology are getting good enough that you can sleep and have the ship navigate and then wake you up. But I then I but then a, I read about how you'd be dreaming and it might be horrible if you're in a you're in a nightmare and you can't wake up. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, yeah. That was on Ancient yeah. Aliens or some there one of those is that shows. Part. Yeah. But you know <laughs> the nice thing is time and dreams is always so warped. Yeah. I, I you know. And, and and but again we're we're getting even better at the chemistry of that and I bet you you could have feedback loops, you know, and know which brain signals you know, your body during the nightmare would be exhibiting stress and you're being monitored oh. and, you, you know, you adjust perhaps to slightly a, the chemical balance that takes you out of the dream state. Or puts you into in a happy dream that you don't want to put you into a happy dream. So, you know, the pieces I think are there and what it really will take is the motivation. Well, you believe um, it or not, we are out of time, Michael. Do oh, you believe my God. that? Yes. It, it went I can't. By, I know I could talk to you all day. Well, we're going to have to have you back, and we're going to talk about your book, because I think that will be a fascinating show, oh, too. Oh, I'd love to do that. All right. So I'm excited. First of all, thank you so much for being a professor here oh. at UCI. We love that. It's so wonderful. Thank you for being on the show. And we will meet you at Contact in the Desert this coming weekend, okay? I look forward to it. I can't wait. Okay. Thank you so much. All thank right. you for having me. Yeah. Just give your website and it's time to go. Right. Real quickly. So people can find me at Michael Denon, just spell it like my name, dot O-V-P-T-L. That's Office of Vice Provost of Teaching and Learning, my role at UCI, dot UCI, dot EDU. If you forget, just search Michael Denon at UCI. And you can find all sorts of things I do and I'm on, and you'll eventually get to that website too. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Minerva and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at privacypiracy.org. Thanks. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 